winter. Hello and welcome to What We Do in the Winter. This is the 63rd episode in this series of podcasts from the Isles of Mull, Iona, Ulva, Gometra and Erid. I'm Alistair Satchel. I live outside of Dervig in the north of Mull and I'll be your host today. Hope this finds you happy and well wherever you may be. This episode is a little bit different from the previous episodes. It's a lecture from the 1980s given by Lachie McLean, Lachie Nock, to the Mull Historical Society. The lecture has the loose title of Tales from the Glen. This recording comes from the archive of Donald McLean, Donald Langemull, which was bequeathed to Mull Museum in Tobermory. Donald spent many hours recording lectures, talks, conversations and radio programmes about or connected to the islands around Mull. It's an incredible resource and I'm delighted to say that there's mountains of it to be gone through. I'm releasing this recording on the mainstream of what we do in the winter as I think it would be of interest to so many of our listeners. The rest of Donald Langemull's archive will be released over the coming years in partnership with Mull Museum and can be found on both the What We Do in the Winter SoundCloud and main webpage. In this lecture, Lachie talks about the origins of the Clan MacLean, the struggle to keep Gaelic language and culture alive, Glenforsa and Glencannell, place names, local storytellers of his youth in Lochbui, and so, so much more. To my taste, archive recordings really don't get much better than this. It's an absolute goldmine of information. What I would have given to have spent time with Lachie. The lecture just kind of stops mid-sentence about an hour into the recording. I'll be back at the end with a little more information on the archiving process we're using and with other exotic waffle. But now it is with the greatest of pleasure, and thanks to the McLean family, that I'm delighted to pass you over to Lachie Nock. So last June, Mrs. McCray said to me, eh, what are you doing in uh, February? <laughs> and February seemed a tremendously long way away. And I was at a very weak moment at the time, uh, probably in best of what I was going to say at, the ta- at that particular time. And I said, well, eh, that'll be all right. And, you know, I'm sure everybody has these weak moments. And that's... July, August, September, October, November, December crept on. There was a grim feeling that I was doing nothing to meet Mrs. McCray's demands. And uh, then she met me one day and she said, uh, what are you going to talk about? <laughs> and boy, did that sink me. <laughs> so I think we compromised and she said, tales of the Glen. Well, if someone likes at the end of this to say, what did that do to do with Tales of the Glen? <laughs> At, um, anyway, um, really it's like scraping the bottom of the valve because so many heard a lot of these stories before. But um, as Donald, when Donald very kindly phoned up the other night to ask me if I needed any assistance, uh, not with you, but I said whether I didn't or not. But anyway, uh, I was still in a state of flux, and uh, I think the Americans would call it a very mixed up kid, and this is me <laughs> to this day. I went, and I thought it was being smart, you know, and I wrote these things, because every smart person writes up notes, and I don't know what good they're going to read to me, because first of all, I can't read them anyway, and probably I'll forget half of what's in them. But anyway, having written these things, uh, I was off at a tangent this morning. Because the very first thing I got in the morning was a telephone from a lady in Radio Highland asking for uh, something in Gaelic about our friends doing the brain. And uh, <laughs> uh, I, she said, I said, well, I'm rather busy at the time. Could you not phone? And then, of course, I got quite honestly, I couldn't think of who she could phone for an interview in Gaelic <coughs> at that particular time of morning. And... Uh, she said, well, I'll give you half an hour and I'll be back. So I thought that she might not come back, but she did, I'm afraid. And I did something for her, which I heard twice today already. And dear me, I don't know if anybody else has heard it, but, you know, I think I had a serious impediment in my speech because not only was the Gaelic very rusty, but her questions that were interspersed were sort of deleted. And you had these tremendous 
pregnant process or whatever they like to call that. <laughs> but however, I'm sure my brains don't think they've anything to worry about if it's some member silly that's talking at the other end. And, uh, uh, but uh, tonight, she, or uh, no, it was uh, in the morning as well, when they finished, she asked me if I could gather up two three farmers with their wives who would have a discussion in Gaelic on the radio. And um, it really set me thinking that, yeah, we, we, there's just not such a thing in Mullen. Uh, there is one other farmer who has Gaelic, and that's it. Mm -hmm. uh, then she said, could you get us, what we had in mind was, somebody from each industry in Mull, maybe two farmers, two hotel keepers, was the other one. And I racked my brains, but I can't think of a hotel keeper. So really, uh, cutting an awful long story short, the, uh, it really, you know, struck me that we have reached a stage in Mull just now that there is about half a dozen people who speak Gaelic, maybe I'm exaggerating, but it, it, it's really down to that. And this is in an island where less than a hundred years ago, Gaelic was the main language, and uh, probably it's one of the islands that have donated more in Gaelic songs, poetry, and uh, in music, that it's reduced to now to a couple of characters who can get through in Gaelic. But, uh, you know, I thought it was rather sad, if nothing else. I, um, and it set me thinking that, you know, the process that was started by, uh, well, probably just after the 45, or, or even up in Mr. Loch, Mr. Loch and Mr. Sellers, who said one time that they hoped that they would could erase the Gaelic language and the tongues that spoke them from the face of the highlands. Mm -hmm. And you know, however way it's gone, it that the proof was meeting it certainly has mm. happened. Yeah. Uh, I believe the only place, you know, the purest place is, is um, Lewis, where, you know, um, the evictions didn't just take place to, with such extremity. In fact, there's very little. And they are, I believe, probably the strongest struggle of Gaelic. The other thing is that um, a gentleman phoned uh, me the other night and he, he said, you know, um, in Malwa, Find, he said, to be quite fair, I was to tell you, a certain reticence on the natives, or, you know, natives were the word they used, <laughs> uh, to uh, accept change, or the ideas of, of people who have come in, and he said, you know, I'd really like to see them using the expertise that we have in Ireland to a greater degree, and, uh, you know, some things maybe I actually agree with, but this sort of maybe raises the hackles a wee bit, mm -hmm. and uh, I just couldn't think of anything smart to say at the time. But uh, he, uh, I said, well, you know, um, probably, you know, that uh, you just don't. Well, he did want to say that we lived. Some people lived in the past. I don't know if it was hitting or not. Lived too much in the past, and that the clearances were something of centuries ago, and uh, immediately sort of say hackles went up and I sprang to and said, you know. I don't think probably you haven't studied it, but the films aren't such a terrible long time ago. And even living, people living today's memories, they are a very uh, real thing. And could colour the approach of people. You know, um, I think it's only fair to say that had it happened anywhere else, you know, um, it might have been much more real, but we, we were in these parts, the what do I call it, the establishment, for what if a better name, seem to have made a very, very good job in uh, um, dampening the historical rec recordings of these things. Uh, I know that when I was in school myself, our history books were uh, uh, all of, you know, you read about the glory of the British Empire and all the colonisation of it and, uh, you know, valorous deeds done by so and so and so and so. Uh, we, we never read about what we were being told outside in Gaelic. Mm -hmm. And it's one thing that I always know, I now can look back at, that I was never told a story about the island or about the places in English. No one ever told us anything in English, but we were always told in Gaelic. Um, people seemed to feel free to uh, recount these things and tell us in Gaelic, whereas they would never dream of saying them in English. And uh, all I can think of, this was probably part of the way of things where they were told they must not repeat historical things. It was, um, you did get people, even when I was young, who said, you know, it doesn't do you any good to uh, listen to that rubbish, you know. Uh, these were from people who lived on the island, but they, they had been, 
either afraid to accept that's or, or uh, to admit that such things had happened, or even in a you know um, retelling the felt that they were committing a tremendous crime against someone, someone they never seemed to know. But uh, once they started speaking in Gaelic, they you know they were telling some really fantastic stories, and um, as I say, Mull having no Gaelic today. Uh, in Lovui, where I was brought up, they, 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 were, they had some of the greatest Gaelic poets in that area. Uh, today there's only about half a dozen people, but uh, in a generation before us, we had, there was, in two or three generations before that, there were some fantastic Gaelic mm. who left tremendous records. Uh, I can think of one, Lachmantu Hroken, who was Lachin Livingston, who was uh, uh, Dr. Flores. He had some tremendous songs, which I'm afraid were never published, because he did run across the authorities who just would not accept these stories. And uh, the older people used to sing these songs, and uh, uh, even at our age, we didn't know whether to believe them or not, because uh, when you read your history books, these sort of things just weren't in it. And uh, who did you believe? So that the young people were very mixed up. There was another one before that called Dunavar in Lockwood, who um, I believe was the greatest historian of the lot in verse and in prose. Um, the, the, that's where I got most of the little I do know is from this prose, which some people acquired. And it was a type of, uh, I can't remember, I don't know if I do. It was long, lengthy verses of prose, which had been taught them, must have been from a very early age. They call it Kandrach in Mull. Um, Ross, they call it in other parts. But this Kandrach um, is something the same as the Piper. Uh, pipers learn tunes by the sort of mouth music. But these people learned the history by the same sort of, it had an intonation, sort of, which they could uh, you know, what was always noticeable is if they got stuck there, they went back a bit and they started again. And um, I learned at a very early age that it was a, a very true account of these things that happened. Um, there would be cross-checks in it, you know, they would, if they were talking about something that happened in Queen Elizabeth's reign, uh, at a certain date they would say, Alm re Baranalisic, which was the... Uh, time of Queen Elizabeth and Queen Mary's reign. Uh, earlier than that, they would say, Anne who was the progenitor of the clan, the clan as we know it today. But um, the thing, when there was verses and verses and verses, that, um, it, you know, the, the, the terrible pity that there was no tape recorders, mm -hmm. and we were all at an age then where we didn't even think of writing things down. We were actually apt to agree with them that, you know, history was a bit of had that um, you know it was a tremendous lot. The, the last person who I knew was the late Hubert Nimage. I think most, uh, quite a few people remember him. Uh, a tremendous person altogether who, who really had Mull history from almost Pictish times. He could uh, record, he could uh, recite things that happened in the, the beginning of the Scots the colonization in Mull. He um, could even whether, you know, uh, <coughs> we didn't doubt it, but he could recite even the names of animals to be found in the island there that have been extinct for years and years. Uh, there is one name that I can always remember. Uh, it's still a part of Nock, and it's a word called Dukusk. It's called Nyekna Dukusk, which means the nest of the something. There is no one can tell us, we haven't ever found out what a Dukusk is. Today that place is called the Eagle's Nest, but Dukusk was not an eagle because they had Dukusk and they um, things like that, that you know, mm -hmm. it's really tragedy when these. Mm -hmm. But um, in, and I can only go about his cross, uh, if I'm going to try to remember what he said, um, this, the mall, uh, he and his cross um, had, had a calendar, that the mall people were suspicious of change. And this, this must have been, these things must have been made hundreds of years ago. Uh, they, they said that, um, well, from the year 1000, the Maclean's were in Mull, which uh, I think 
Captain Scott's interesting lecture at the year, he mentioned the, the early beginnings of the Clan MacLean. Uh, in the local mythology, the Clan MacLean could trace their, their history back to the year 1000. And it was uh, the first MacLean that they knew of was Dougal of Scone, Dougal Scone, they called him, who allegedly came from Scone in Perthshire and came to Mull. He um, was a mediator in a lot of inter-tribal battles between the Picts and the Scots when he was at Scone. He was regarded to be a very judicial man and uh, he sat in some, um, I can't remember the name, which is the name of his place in Scone, but he, 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 uh, the people came to him for advice. But uh, it doesn't uh, tell, uh, I don't know why he finally moved to Mull, but he certainly was in Schoon in the year 1000 and had moved to Mull about within the next 50 years. And that was the first uh, trace I've heard of the Maclean's coming to Mull. The uh, other clan that were, could trace their time back to, in, to that region were the Macphails of Glenfossher. The clan Macphail um, were proud of the fact that they could trace their uh, family tree back for 800 to 900 years. And this was said about 100 years ago, so this is about a thousand years that uh, they resided in Glenfossil. The uh, McGilveries could trace their family back in Glencanel for a thousand years. So that, uh, these families who uh, were there almost at the beginning of history grew up with the Clan Maclean and uh, were instrumental in the clan in the clan's strength. They enjoyed for about, from the year, probably a thousand, until the end of the 17th century, they enjoyed a very uh, prosperous time under the clan system. And uh, as far as I can gather, the clan system it was not what most people, or what we were led to believe in the history books, uh, not at all like that. It was a, probably the, the um, ideal socialist system, if you know what I mean. The, the clan chief was only there, he wasn't a landlord, he was quite campaigner, but he was there purely on the, by the wishes of the clan. And as long as he behaved himself, he enjoyed that position. But if he stepped out of line, he knew about it. And his main job in life was to ensure the well-being of the clan. In the clan history, there are no periods of want. And if you take the clan Maclean, which uh, maybe being a bit parochial, definitely by it, they, uh, they started from always very small beginnings in, uh, we, I say anyway, the Glencarnell area, um, I don't know other people have the do it part of it, but I'll come to that later on. They went on forays, and very early they, they would go right down to the borders. It was quite a, a known thing in the in songs to find that the, the clan had been on a trek, as they called it, which was a foray, to the borders, um, even being selective in the animals they brought back. And uh, I was um, looking at some of the, thing up that they were talking about at one time, taking back 106 horses in one foray from the borders. I mean, uh, think of phoning my brains today and saying you've got to get 106 horses across the mall. What would happen? But uh, they, they, there, is rec there is records of them bringing back over 100 head of cattle at a time. And uh, the story of an old lady in Glencarnell, they came back from a foray with a type of cattle beast that she didn't think was very much good. And uh, she, the, one of her sayings was, which meant uh, there is not much strength in a lowland cow's fat. And uh, another story of the same old lady who, uh, looking at the, the bone, which was very fine bone, obviously, it must have been sort of the preserve of her dairy cattle. She looked at it and she said, and a grave mascalter, which meant, uh, uh, oh dear, the, the, was, the furry wasn't of much good because there's not much marrow in a lowland cow's bones. Um, 
so that they, they, they were very earnest. That one of the points that gave them ability, and that they knew it very early on, was that staple diet was, was a meal, either barley meal or oatmeal. The barley, they, they grew the barley for their immediate use. Later on, they started to distill it. But they, they used barley, and they, the, the barley was the everyday. The oatmeal was kept for, uh, as much as possible, was kept for going on forays. They had um, an iron, which they call a brigalearing, which is the forerunner of our girdles, which was a very small thing. It was shaped that you could hang either at your side if you were a walking soldier, or fit behind the saddle if you were riding. And uh, every man carried a bag of flour, of meal, I should say. This little bag of meal, and when they stopped for the night, they could they light, lit a fire, heated up this iron, and just mixed the meal with water, and either made a bonnet, which was edible, or uh, made a porridge, whatever they preferred. And this got them going much ahead, even at those times, of the lowland people, who weren't as well organised in those times, that they could go on very long forests, carrying all their own provisions, and with these horses, which I can't remember, is it Irwin of Drum, who was, I, I really don't know whether this is it, but there was an Irwin of Drum, who obviously was in the, either in the Midlands or Scotland Lowlands, who said that their horses reminded them of lice. They didn't go around anything, they just climbed over the top. And these people could come and uh, raid a township or town and uh, take off. And uh, you know, the, the, the heavier horse, the lower horse, just couldn't follow them because they, they had got... Uh, their their uh, horse could, uh, had to go around the lowlands, whereas the others had to go over the top. The um, iron... This Gretchel thing uh, became, there's numerous songs made to Ian Nagal, Ian Nagel, which was really, not his sword, it was what he owed his living, his livelihood on was this little girdle. Um, the other mixture they had with their meal was that, I should have said that before a soldier went, the day before a, a clansman went into battle, they were always asked or ordered that they must consume as much meal as possible to carry them on. If, if the day was long or if the strenuous, they had to get, there, there's a, a Gallic saying, I just can't remember how it's went, you know, get the meal into you and it will do its own job. And they had various ways of doing it. They mixed it with some, any kind of drink. But another uh, was what they called the Mulgus Furak, which was uh, oatmeal and cream mixed, and, and it was honey, they put honey in it. Uh, in Sky it was called Stafak, but it was the same thing, it was the sort of uh, refined version of it, it switched, switched cream and meal. And anyone, I defy anyone to eat more than half a cup of it and feel well after it, even <laughs> <laughs> But uh, th that, was, that was one of the, and this was what carried them on to, um, they could go, they, 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 I think it's Lath this Lathwin Lothar, who was, no, his son, I'll have to go back to this thing, I lost my glasses. Uh, uh, his son, Ethan um, Oa, left okay. Mull, um, yes it is, I'm sorry. Um, he left Mull in, uh, must have been just after the battle, but after the battle of Bannock, which slightly after that, in about 50 years after the battle of Bannock, but in, in the Gallic sort of, uh, measure of time. <laughs> Uh, took his galleys right up to Dublin and took the town of Dublin, removed all the uh, butter and uh, cheeses and filled the galleys with these things and sailed back to Mull. You know, it's incredible to believe the distances that they could go uh, and live off the countryside and, and get get back and win. And this is, a, a, you know, coming from just a little island like Mull, that they were a very organised... Um, system. They, um, they did have periods where stuff, you know, oats and barley and that sort of thing didn't go in one part of the island, didn't go in the other. And there were people appointed by the doers to ensure that every homestead had sufficient. And if they thought that one homestead had more than they required, it was immediately taken 
and taken to uh, a central point where it was distributed amongst the uh, other uh, rest of the island, in, in, usually in the springtime. But uh, what was noticeable in that time was that, uh, you know, their well-being. Because, you know, you, you, people have sort of said, well, you know, uh, there was a crowd of a rabble, but uh, their general health uh, must have been extraordinary because um, there are, before they went to battle, they were put through a medical, a very rough type of medical. <laughs> they were in uh, the Ross, coming up from the Ross, there's a part opposite, above Russell, above the bridge now, at, where the bridge is on uh, the Coilida River. And a man was had to jump fully clothed and carry whatever armour he was going to carry. He had to jump across and reach the other side, or else he was just turned home. I mean, there was there was no. Um, we'll, we'll test you. We'll have we'll have another medical next time. Come up again. You are you either passed or you were sent home. And uh, around uh, this part, there was one at Knock where the standing stones are at Knock. Now I believe there was a place. The standing stones. I'm sorry. The stepping stones were below Knock House, which I'll come to again. Um, there were two stones in the river there, and you must jump get across them in two leaps. If you fell in the water, that was you had killed your medical. The one story I heard of uh, one man who carried a friend who felt that he couldn't go to the Battle of Harlow, and they had called him up from the Russell Mall, and he, they were friends, and he was fighting that his friend couldn't do the jump, so he carried part of his equipment so that the friend could jump. So when he went to jump, he was overloaded, fell in the river, and was told to go home. And um, the Maclean's brawlers came up over Mam Derigwig, which was the, the route then. Uh, people know Dererach, where uh, you know the, yes, you know anyway. Uh, well, just you went up across there and in a and along. But this fellow waited till they were all out of sight, which was quite a bit away, and he set off and he went over the Mam. Brapadil into Glencanel, and when they reached Knock, he was standing there in front of them. So he was the, he was the exception to the rule, and they took him with them. He um, was the last Maclean at uh, in the Battle of Harlow. The the, uh, the chief was the, the last to be slain there, and he was the last man to fall before the chief was slain, uh, and. Uh, the other thing that was really remarkable is the distances that carried chiefs and bodies home. I mean, the Battle of Harlow, uh, which was in, I think, 14 something, oh, I wonder, this is part of my notes, I did write this down. So, the, the, uh, yeah, 1411, they uh, carried the chiefs and most of the head, Kankini, the head men, they carried them home. The chief was carried home by Morrison's and McGuinness's, whom I believe that. Mr. Morrison, Donald Morrison, up in home, is descended from. They were the clan uh, historians. <coughs> the, uh, the, the sort of, I think the name split, and the other historian was a very famous historian, the late from Dooley Morrison, who uh, and time. That uh, Donald Morrison's history of history, uh, being historian, is just not something he. It's uh, hereditary, and uh, anyway, they carry the ch the chief home. There was, I believe, 13 Campina carried home from the Battle of Harlow <coughs> and buried, buried in Inchkenneth and Iona. So the, the very fact of carrying these people through enemy territory back into Mull, you know, it, it really is something. But uh, the, uh, if I can come forward a wee bit here, the, uh, this prosperity lasted really up until uh, the Jameses, who started to look at the Highlands and they thought that the Highlands were getting a bit uppity. They thought it was time they would curb them a bit. And various ones sent expeditions to the Highlands. And uh, Mull uh, seemed to be the prime target. I don't think the Maclean's endeared themselves to any of the rest because as soon as they got off the hook, they were off on another foray, which uh, invariably brought the wrath of the gods on their heads. Um, there were half a dozen attempts to uh, invade Duart, but uh, to various things. If it was a storm that kept the invading fleet back, it was always attributed to the favourableness of the Dostyakulov, which was a mull witch. 
And um, she, I believe, came to Mull uh, in an eggshell. So when I was there, I believe many of the Mull people remember, you, every Mull person was supposed yeah, to be there. Yeah. And I can remember an old lady, having a night one day from an old lady, and uh, we just left the egg and she came around and she said, you, you must never ever put an egg away like this because we might have another of the Dutcher pull up which will not be so favourable to Mull. <laughs> but uh, um, the uh, Fran Fletcher, who lived the latter years in Glencarnell, owed their existence to, they were part of the Fran McLean, but they were the traditional bowmaker to the Fran McLean. And the story goes that in one of those raids on Duart, they got themselves in a very favourable position around Duart, and they kept up a barrage of arrows on the Campbells who were coming ashore, so that they retreated. And because of that, they um, were given a tract of land at Brathill, which the McGillivrays at that time had uh, vacated. This is at the foot of Mentala, and uh, I'll slide a bit. So they were given that um, sometime in the 15th century, they were given this tract of land with a little bit of paper along with it. Um, I'll tell you later what happened to the bit of paper. But um, these, uh, the McLeans seem to have fallen foul of the royalty. But at the same time, they attracted the attention of Queen Elizabeth, who uh, is said to have said that if she was to choose a warrior from the whole of Europe, she would have the McLean of Duart and his tribe, who uh, I don't know if this is true or not, but she said that not only were they warriors, but they were the most gentlemanly males in the Western Hemisphere, as she knew it. So I don't, I don't know whether she was just pouring honey on it, but uh, uh, we do find that she, she, for years, she carried on a very lengthy correspondence in the wars with Ireland with Maclean of Duart. But Maclean was quite wily too, because he wanted to be paid before he set off. And uh, she was hanging on so every so often, McLean asked her for a little bit more cash. When was the cash forthcoming before she would? The um, story that they came round Grand Camel and Kilfinnigan. They gathered all the men from Grand Camel and uh, Kilfinnigan, but the whoever was the chief of the Glenfossa people, he said what to do at first of all. What was going to be paid? before he went, because this, was, this wasn't this was a clan thing, this was to be for somebody else, so they wanted their money on the barrel. And um, the Amakthee of Collinsey, who had been in Duart, said, I heard that, we are, that you are getting nothing, that uh, the money hasn't come up from the South yet, so you can do what you like. So they said they decided to stay at home. So this, in, again, invoked the wrath of McLean of Duart to this Macfee who uh, we thought he would be doing back on McPhee for spreading this rumour around. And the story goes that uh, McPhee uh, was invited to do it. And uh, two or three of Duart's henchmen were told to dispose of him as soon as possible when he arrived in. And uh, uh, he had a friend in the, a girl whom we had befriended in the Duart household. And she came down, she met him at the door and she said to him in Gaelic, uh, where, where have you, what way have you come? And he said, I came down to Encarnel. And she said to him in Gaelic, the fact that which translated literally is, uh, did you see my horses and your own horses? But with a slight um, change of accent, it also means, I was Chihane, means uh, get out of the way yourself, run away yourself. So uh, McPhee, gathered this, that this was a signal to him to get out and he escaped with his life. But uh, the, uh, I think at the end that, that there was some, I can't remember just how many McLeans went to Ireland because they said that uh, it was the one of the beginnings of the, the downfall of the McLean uh, clan that the Duarts were willing to go with England and not get paid sufficiently to pay their own men. Uh, there, there is a song by 
Uh, I think it's John Bath, if call him, one of these, who were another uh, family of bards who uh, decries the idea of Maclean becoming a mercenary for English gold. Uh, so, I don't know whether I'm boring you with this. <laughs> As time went on, the, uh, the Maclean's started to take a, it's a new attitude had to come into it that people were, could go and be mercenaries. And uh, Duart was finding that it was getting more difficult every year to raise the number of soldiers that he could raise because they were in demand from other parts, especially the uh, head of the households, where I could say that one can notice in Maltese the, the traditional heads of households. You can almost notice in the houses where uh, you, you can say Mokbui, Scalasco, Garnamy, and of course Duart. Then you came to Pennygown, Calafly, Ardenbrose, Drumfin, Langamore. Calgary. Calgary, yes, Calgary, Langamore. You know, you, you can still see today, you can tell by even by the old houses, the size of them. And you come right around to, to Lagan, um, up the, I haven't heard of anything out of the Kilifronian area, but there was no. Derryguig. Trishnish. Yes, Trishnish, I'm sorry, yes, Trishnish, and Derryguig, uh, right over to Russell, obviously. You know, you can, it's pretty easy to even to see the, 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 the structure of the houses that they were the heads. And, uh, these people, they weren't uh, sleeping. They, they found that uh, the, the clan, the chief, uh, after all this training, they could sell their wares elsewhere. And you did find that at times when he went away to Foray, there, there were some of the, of the lesser chiefs away fighting for some other person. But um, as time went on, uh, the, the raids on the clan became, the retribution by the higher ups became more fiercer. That you find that uh, in the end, or towards the end of the sixth, the 17th century, um, they were sending, Argyle had raised, risen up, and um, we find that at one particular time when he had sent General, General Leslie to Mall with about 7,000 men, they landed at Derry Wick, which is you know, down at Beaver Rocks, and uh, came through the Knock, where Knock is now, they <coughs> The, all the males were, some of them had gone on a foray. The ones that saw them coming, they decided it was better to get out. They took all the cattle, which the, the sanctuaries then were Glen Cannell and Glen Fosher, and uh, some of the lesser glens, which is Lagavaster, which uh, I believe gets the name, it means the Glen of Mourning. That is below Benmore, the great, the big glen that one can see off the, off the road. It's called Lagavaster, which it comes from the, it stems from the word bastard, which is the clapping of hands in mourning. Some were up there, but were caught up there. And um, these people committed well, tremendous acts of, of, uh, of terror and, and violation. They uh, hopped all the cattle, that, you know, they, they cut the big sinew at the back of the cattle's leg. <laughs> and uh, any male child, they, they, uh, uh, that's, uh, I've never heard of them killing. What they did was the same thing with a, with a child. They put uh, the point of the sword behind his leg and, and uh, cut the lad's sinew, which is something the same as they did with the cattle. Um, and uh, they said they left a generation of lame and folk Macleans behind them in a week. Uh, they see, this seemed to have petered out. Maclean came back again. Uh, this was one of the problems that they, you find uh, through the years that they, the ordinary clansman was beginning to think that he was getting the tough end of the stick because the chiefs, and it was all through the Highlands the same, the chiefs used to manage to make retribution and or be pardoned, but the lowly clansman, he got the, his share of the blame. Uh, maybe the, the chief made for Edinburgh and uh, ask for pardon and that sort of thing. But while he was there looking for this pardon and that sort of thing, the, the messengers were in Mull doing the bit there. And uh, then in a, in a few years' time after that, you find uh, yeah, another uh, people under the, 
Uh, General Turner was one of the men. Tony too, why they called him, Black Turner of the Sword. And they came ashore at the same place again in Derry Gwig. And uh, what they did this time, they came around, so they came to the head of the lock at Knock and down Kilachronin Way. They came there in September and they billeted <coughs> ten men in each house. And they, it's, it's said in that that it's McDonald's, but the way it found gone, it must have been a sect of the Clan McLean. They billeted them in the house in September. They were there during October as well in the houses. And the last day of October, there was a tremendous storm of hail and rain, of hail and snow. And at midnight, the soldiers gathered all the women and the children's clothes and set fire to them outside the house. And uh, they said that, they reckoned that thousands perished before the new year along the Kilachronin area. They, I believe there are some places, and I've lost the name of them, where they made communal graves. The soldiers made communal graves. And I, I, you know, again, it's something that I'd heard, but where it was, I just don't know. I don't know if Roddy McNeil knows anything about that. Yeah, I don't know. But um, yeah. the, um, I, I just can't remember the date of that. But that was the, that was the second raid in Knock, in, uh, on Mull. <coughs> Meanwhile, a... I don't know whether I've written this down. Uh, the, the, uh, yeah, Argyll wasn't happy anyway with the progress that these fellas had made. And he applied for another 500 troops and another 1,800 of his own to come and finish the job. He said that he hoped to extirpate ex yeah, the McLean's family lane, which meant uh, that he would clean out all the ones of the name of McLean from the island of Mull. But some way, this didn't materialise either. And, uh, well, yes, there was a hail, and the Dutch of were helped again. And while this was going on, McLean's got a few barges, a few galleys together, and sailed over to the Easel, and did the same to as many cattle and sheep and that they got, carried home enough to keep them going the winter, and survived for another while. But... Uh, uh, at, uh, finally, Duart amassed such a uh, force and uh, legal uh, aids behind him that uh, it is said in the, uh, that he invented debts which never occurred. The McLean debts were supposed to have been paid, but uh, the, uh, there were never receipts. And uh, he got the blessing of the powers that be to go to Mull and take possession of of the Duer Castle, and the last result was um, Canterbury, and uh, he, he went off there. McLean advised all the inhabitants not to resist, and uh, that it would be much better for the, the rest of the island if they did nothing. Uh, they finally took over about 1690. But uh, the McLeans were unhappy then again, but as soon as the 1715 uh, rising became, they set off again, and uh, Took about three, four hundred men. They managed to mobilise them all, take them across. The uh, result was disastrous, and uh, all the Mull men who weren't killed, all of were captured, were sent across to slaves to uh, the West Indies. And I believe that uh, people going out there after the turn of last century met descendants of these people who could trace their time back to, until their, their forebears were sent over as slaves. Mm -hmm. uh, the, that, then the <coughs> human element became the, the Jameses had gone to London and had become anglicised. They had taken a different outlook on Scotland and its Wales. They had invited most of the chiefs to go down there. And they, in turn, afraid, uh, rather thought of their places up in the Wales as, as being expendable, that the people were of not much value to them. So that when the 45 came, eh, there's a story about the, the how you know Prince Charles landed in Moida. He came down, eh, there was word sent to Mingary Castle that someone had landed in Moida. The messenger went by boat to Oban, and a messenger went on horseback to Edinburgh to tell of the landing. But uh, while that was going on, a minister 
who uh, was told about it, had an Adam Murphy and such a thing, came over and went up to Lancaster to get recruits for the Jacobite cause. And he remarked at that time that when he had been there before, one had only got to go to a place up at Rawl, uh, which is called Krupka. Uh, it's just outside Rawl, I'm sorry, it's, I just can't remember. It's not Krupka Fast Street. Krupka which means the knoll of choosing. One had only got to go to Krupka and whistle, and you could fill half a dozen galleys of soldiers. But he went up to Glenforshire, went to Krupkendagen, and there was no response. The people were either too afraid to go, or else there was not enough from there. So that they, uh, they gathered, not an awful lot of people went with him. But during the following year, they went across and joined the Drimlin forces. The, uh, the main ferrymen at the time at Mordon were called uh, Gregersons, or MacGregor. I believe Anne is today's representative of the clan. And they, I believe, a, had a fleet of boats who sailed at night, taking Maclean's through the, through the uh, government forces across so that they could join the, the Maclean um, forces under Drimnin. And uh, Every, it seems to be in, in, in all the Gallic history, that, uh, in the Gallic counter, they had no illusions. They weren't doing this because of Prince Charles. They were doing this purely as being um, something that they had done in, from time immemorial. And they felt an allegiance to the clan. And they felt that they were letting the clan down and, and the chief down unless they joined and did their share. But they had, they, in this, what I've heard anyway, no one had any illusions about Prince Charles. This was done purely as a part of the allegiance they allowed uh, had to the clan. But they were rather than they had hoped that if the clan chief <laughs> won the day, that he would uh, put things back to the former way, where uh, every man owned his own piece of land. That's something I meant to say. That in, in the clan system, everybody believed he owned his own piece of land that in future years when Brent came in, they felt this is an evil which these people had no right whatsoever to impose, that they had owned the land, they had lived on the land from the beginning of time almost, or beginning of history, and that no one could prove to them that the land belonged to anybody else but themselves. Um, and old McGilvery and Duncanel said that if the day came that some man came and showed him a document saying that the land belonged to him, given to that man by God, he would relinquish it next morning to him. Uh, that was their attitude towards the land. The land belonged to the people, and uh, their only uh, rent that they knew, they didn't know what rent was, that they would serve their chief, which in their idea was serving the clan. It wasn't because they were serving a doer, they were serving the whole clan that they would uh, give their services. And, uh, when the 45, the Battle of uh, Culloden, really wasn't regarded, although it's you know, the papers and popular press nowadays, as the great disaster. In the clan, in the Gallic mythology, it, it wasn't taken as being such a tremendous disaster. It was a disaster of the cause. But, uh, you know, um, even they didn't think it was such a tremendous slaughter in comparison to what it put out. But what they did, uh, remark on was the aftermath of the the, um, the uh, Battle of Culloden, where the atrocities began. And uh, a story that uh, I've heard, I heard in the family when I was very young, and I believe it's now, in the, if anybody wants to, the, uh, the Jewish manuscript had it, I believe. Uh, it says, uh, they try to explain how Cumberland started the slaughter, was because after the battle, he and Argyle were walking through the lines. They came to a sheep fank, and in the sheep fank were three young men. One of them had lost the hand at the wrist, and the other two were cauterizing it with a broken sword. They had a fire going, they were making the sword, they were sword red hot, and they were, one was holding the fellow down, and the other one was cauterizing it. It's better to look Gaelic, and um, 
Cumberland stopped and looked and he said, well, they are in their proper place there, uh, animals in their pen. And Argyll said, I don't agree with you. He, he said that the only thing that was wrong with these people today is that they were on the wrong side. I reckon that these on the right side were the, are the best soldiers in Europe. Cumberland said, absolute rubbish. There's, there's nothing but scum of the air and we are very well rid of them. So Argyle argued with them, and Argyle mm -hmm. said, I bet that they could, any one of these, could take on any soldier you have and beat him. So uh, Cumberland said, right, what's your wager? So they, they haggled about the wager, because they finally came to an agreement that if either one could produce the victor, um, Cumberland, if um, Cumberland's trooper, Dragoon, as he nominated, would vanquish the gale, he would uh, get a, a bottle of wine from uh, a gale. If, on the other hand, all the prisoners' lives would be spared. So uh, he went in and he asked them, uh, and the fellow with the broken, the, the cut arm, he volunteered to go, but the brothers asked him, told him that it was just no use and he would only be a disservice to the rest of the Gales, if he volunteered. So anyway, the, the fight took place, and uh, the dragoon was killed. Then immediately, the dragoon was killed. Uh, Cumberland shouted, "Seize them all!" And uh, Argyle said, "No, you have promised in your honour as a gentleman that you would spare their lives." And uh, Cumberland, in a fit of pique, said, "Right, the lives of these three kill all the rest." So uh, this was told to be, uh, you know, it was, it was something that was been passed down, and uh, I believe it's, it's in some of the moral history as well. But uh, immediately they were all seized, they were all dragged, all but every person was showing any signs of wound at all were taken and laid out and all shot. The, there was one place just not far away where a few of them were, uh, took refuge, and they didn't bother going in, they just set it on fire. And as anybody came out, they were shot or, or bayoneted. The uh, names, uh, this was one of the things that in LA used with uh, some of the names we saw, the heroes of the British Empire, and one was Wolf. General Wolf, who was uh, in all our history books as being a great man. In the Highland, it's a completely different story about Wolf altogether. The Highlands used to spit at his name. He was probably, as one of them said, the most varnished. Uh, rascal ever to get away from Satan's claws. Um, I'm quoting the I'm quoting what they said. This is the, I can't just remember how, how it was said in Gaelic. Yeah. I can't remember. But Ain and Ngeal, I can always remember that. The uh, others were General Caroline Scott and Holly. The Wolf, I believe, they all seem to the adventures were all directed towards Wolf, who I believe he relished the extinction of the Highlanders, and he said that he would be doing the British Empire and the British race a great service if the if the Highlanders could be uh, sort of ex extinguished altogether, annihilated. And it was rather ironical that when I believe a wolf scaled the heights of Abraham in Quebec and was shot, you know, he, he, was, he was killed in the, or wounded in the mortally wounded in the ascent. The third soldier behind him was a Dr. McLean from Trofinigan. And when Wolf was dying, all he could say was, get McLean. For God's sake, get McLean. So, uh, yeah. uh, this actually, uh, some of the, uh, the Ross believed that this was justice done from above. And they, uh, then, uh, you know, they, I think, uh, Bishop Forbes gives a very good account of the, the atrocities of the, of the, which some of the mall people eh, endured. The, before the battle, most clansmen discarded all their nether garments, but eh, Wolf and Holly made sure that any that hadn't did it immediately. And eh, they said, we will feed them as they are wont to be fed. And they give them a handful, the, the meal, how they fed them their food was a handful of meal. Each prisoner was given a handful of meal, 
and I sort of went along the line and just give them a handful. If you had nothing to catch it in, it was just too bad, it just fell away. So all they could do was catch it in their hand or their shirt, they turned up their shirt and caught it. And some of them were too modest to do this, so they just stood and uh, uh, in the wind, actually there was a howling gale at the end of April, and uh, most of the food was just blown away in the air. They were then marched through in the race, and uh, the, uh, the sh in the Gaelic thing, they noticed 27 Mull men who, uh, in one hand, clutched their little bit of meal, which they couldn't eat because of the, there was no water to wash it down. They were just handed this meal, and the other held a, a wounded uh, friend or something like this. But after that, uh, they were taken round, a lot of them were taken round, if they belonged to the West Coast. Again, I, I mean, I, I would like to say this, this is, whether, I've never found this in history books, so it's, uh, but it's, it's definitely, in, in the, it was always in the rust that anybody belonging to the islands or West Coast were shipped around the West Coast, and they were kept in holes where the captain had orders to roast, to say, um, as they did, to hoist, a roast on the halyards, so that the smell drifted into the prisoners, and by the time they reached their ports, they, you know, they had either died of uh, hunger or else they, they uh, jumped over the side. And they were very pleased to see anybody who was willing to jump over the side to go over the side. As I said, it saved them a lot of problems at the other end. Then they were taken down uh, to castles in the south, and uh, tremendous indignities where there were some of them drawn and quartered, which was the rule for rebels. And uh, the thing that got the Highlanders more than anything at that time was that at the same time that uh, Britain was at war with France, and the penalty for any soldier uh, being rude or anything to a French soldier was death or a flogging. And at the same time, you know, this, this indignity for mm. uh, being uh, dished out to the Highlanders. So that, uh, again, the the local people felt that this was, again, something that descended on their heads because of their loyalty to their uh, landlords. So then, of course, the time went by where the Duke of Argyll then started to, and, and most of the lairds felt that they could get commissions if they could recruit um, people into their, you know, if they could raise enough uh, volunteers, or as they call them, volunteers, but what happened was they walked into your house and said, how many sons have you got? If you said two, well, you know, we would like them for a while in the services. Or, or if you said three, could we have one for the harvest? They would say, well, uh, right, you get him for the harvest, but you better make your harvest early because he go. And they call it Aum Le Bouantra. And it's in Kilfinnigan, I believe, and, and um, in, in that area, around Lostreen, the, the Duke of Argyll's factor took every able-bodied man away. There was a bad year, you know, harvest time, and uh, many people died during winter time because of, uh, you know, just want of crops. There was no barley, no, no oats harvested because all the young men were gone from the village, or from the area, and uh, it was called Aunabu and Ra because you know, they were told, you know, if, you, if uh, you better make your crops early or else you'll not get a chance to make them. So that uh, this was the sort of attitude I think that brought the, you know, they began to become very sceptical. So that when they, again, as soon as the chiefs uh, started the, the, the local sort of landlord or sold their land, uh, there was a, a local sort of resistance, uh, a mute resistance. They had been let down so often. But then the great final thing came in the clearances, which you all know, and that, uh, again, um, didn't help the, the cause. So that uh, somebody was saying that uh, out of, uh, in, in the evictions, which in my time in school, nowadays everybody reads about them, but in, in our time in school, we were all taught, it, they never occurred. They just were something that uh, people had dreamt, that they were fantasies. But a... Uh, Someone said in this Ross that they reckoned that 5,000, but you know, I think it was 5,000 died in the evictions from the Highlands, including Mull people, in between what died on the boats going over and what died 
you know, after landing. So that uh, the, uh, the, the, this sort of Gallic thing, which uh, incidentally I was going to say, the, one of the problems was that Gallic was uh, banned from all public meetings. Ballot, yes, it was prescribed, but it was, you know, all public meetings, nobody must speak Gallic. And it became quite a common thing that people tell about if a child was heard to speak Gallic, he was asked who his father was. And his father was then told, if he was fit enough, you, I think the best place for you is the army. And so off he was, went to the army, leaving a Gallic-speaking child at home. At home. But um, you, you did find this Gallic thing, which I started off with, came right through even at our time, where uh, you didn't speak Gallic. It had been sort of almost converted into a manner, which are probably, uh, where if anyone was within half a mile of you, you mustn't speak Gallic. Uh, people sort of, you know, as youngsters, if somebody found you speaking Gaelic, and there was somebody who didn't speak Gaelic on the horizon, you, you were you were immediately admonished if you'd carried on. So it, it crept into the, so that I think today we're back down to the area where we have about two or three people. I think there's a pocket, as Donald said, in Tullamore of Gaelic speakers. Yeah. And a pocket Contra, in but uh, it seems a tragedy that what was set out, uh, you know, through devious sort of methods, became a reality that they did manage to extinguish the Gaelic. But I hope that hasn't bored you people. Are you no, absolutely fed up with it? Uh, would you like to see some of these? And I'll uh, just. And you know, I always thought it was because um, the Scots, the Highlanders, were so polite themselves that they didn't speak Gaelic when the English were about. You see, the Welsh... I don't think we were so polite. I think we were just pushed, this was pushed on us. And I, we began, I began to accept it. Being told by uh, the, uh, the schoolmaster's housekeeper, uh, who used to live in our house, where we are now, and she came back to look at the house, and she said, when she came, she was here in 26, I think, she said, and the um, people in the village would be talking Gaelic, but when she went along... They would always stop and speak to her in English, you see. And she said how polite they always were, you see. Because well, I she believe the measure, the measure of this is the areas where there was no uh, evictions, particularly, as I said, the Lewises. The people spoke Gaelic. Uh, I noticed that, you know, especially students in university and colleges, that they spoke Gaelic, and if you didn't understand what they were um, saying, it was your hard lines. That was their attitude. And it was an attitude that has paid dividends over the years. The, uh, but uh, we were, you know, in this part, it was the manners too. So I'll, I'll take a quick run through these things. Who uh, I took taking selfie. And uh, I went through, interviewed in Glasgow. And uh, there were a few of us there. This headmaster of a very well-known school said to us, you know, I cannot see any future in your Celtic courses, unless you would like to go out to the outer isles and sell tea or such like commodity. And that, that was, you know, just three more. I mean, this attitude in, in uh, people who I felt should, you know, really, and today think that should know better. And that particular headmaster, um, he has gone, God bless him, but he uh, definitely, and I, many a person that who, who have been through the school, would uh, criticise and almost ridicule anyone with a Gaelic accent. Mm. And the people that went through that school who did get on were people of outstanding qualities because, you know, the, the, the meek just melted <laughs> and uh, came back because he, he, did, he would repeat after you, you know, oh, and he would say some ridiculous things like, well, where are you thinking of going tonight? You know, something which no one ever spoke. Thank you so much to Mull Historical Society and the families of Lackey himself and Donald Langemull. This archive recording has been released in partnership with Mull Museum in Tobermory. In his lifetime, Lackey was very much recognised as a sargail or tradition keeper. There are various TV programmes and books which feature his stories. The TV programmes are hard to find, but there's one book which will definitely be of interest if you enjoyed this lecture, the link to which I'll put on the website. There are other links on there too, including a PDF of the history of the Clan MacLean, first published in 1889 from the National Library of Scotland. We're very lucky to have an active historian here on the island, Alistair White of Salon. 
His doctorate on the place names of Glenforsa makes fascinating reading and is well worth a read through. Again, a link to that can be found on the website. Alistair's work is very much in the Gallic tradition, taking things forwards into the future in many different ways, including a recent collaboration between Tobermory High School and a school in Carraro in Ireland. We're very, very lucky to have Alistair White. She's Sargail Gerido ahead. I'm archiving the recordings from Donald Langemel's collection by using a sound recorder linked to a reel-to-reel player that I borrowed from Gordon McLean. Thank you, Gordon. Due to the nature of time and age and how they were recorded, some of the recordings are slack or at unusual speeds. I process these recordings by running them through a background noise cancelling filter, then edit them on my computer to tighten up the speeds and make sure there's a good body of sound to them. It's not a quick process in any way, so it's going to be a few years before they're all processed and released. Listening to the recordings is really special. Hearing things from the past that haven't been heard in a long time is such a delight. I found myself getting very excited by some bits of knowledge that people have shared that may not have been spoken out loud for many years. It brings the past back to life in a remarkably vivid way. I'll put most of the archive recordings out on the What We Do in the Archive thread on SoundCloud and on the webpage. This one was part of the mainstream just to whet your appetite. There may be others that come onto the main podcast feed too, as I can tell their interest will be of significance to many people. If you wanted to support the podcast and the archiving process, as it does take quite a lot of time, please feel free to click on the donate tab on whatwedointhewinter.com. But obviously don't worry if you can't or don't want to. I'd much rather that you listened and went exploring through our past with us rather than not. And on that note, thank you, of course, to our monthly supporters. So there you go. That's something a wee bit different and hopefully quite special. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Take care wherever you are. Mo'er in time. Shinakate.